Amen. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Lenita. We can go to the next slide. I'm going to talk about my family here for a second. Um, I am from Florida, but don't worry, I'm originally from Massachusetts, so I know what to do out here. So um, the other day it snowed and every, but I've had people ask me if I like even, do I need to go home and like get you like a sweater? No, I had to dig it out of my closet, but I found it. So it is 85 at home. And uh, yeah, it, for those of you going to Melbourne, it's 45 minutes north of me. You need to go to Melbourne because this, this is cold. So I was saying to somebody earlier this morning, what I don't like is the gray. I can do the cold. It's the gray that I can't do. So uh, as Rob said, uh, it's, it's so funny the way that God works. Uh, he did. He called me up. He was like, I heard this podcast that you did. I barely remembered what I said. Like, he was like, it was so awesome. I was like, okay. Um, I talked about, I talk about a lot of things, and, and I just really love resourcing um, anybody who works with kids. Uh, that's just really the passion of my heart. Um, I just have a real passion for the next generation. Uh, that's been the passion of my heart since I was 20. Uh, I just have really felt like uh, the next generation is always the generation we should be pouring into. I'm a big advocate for legacy, and so uh, I really believe we should always be looking two to three generations behind us and teaching them how to honor two to three generations in front of them. And so uh, I like to talk about these things, so when people ask me if I'll do something, I'll say, okay. Uh, as he said, I've been in ministry for about 27 years now, uh, which the older I get means I'm in a room with youth people who were like, weren't even alive when I started doing youth ministry. And if you don't think that's depressing, then you're not, like you're not over 40. So, and so uh, I've done lots of different things in youth ministry. Uh, I've worked in rural, suburban, and urban uh, ministry, church ministry, nonprofit, faith-based, I have done a lot of different things, but I'll tell you where I am now, and I'll tell you why uh, Rob was really sweet to give you a book today. So there are two things that you should know about me going into the day. Uh, the first thing is, is that I, if my husband would let me go back to school and get a PhD in sociology, um, if he didn't think that was a complete waste of money, I would, I would entirely just, he keeps asking me, well, what would you do with it? I would learn stuff. So he's like, well, you spend all this time doing this anyway. But I'd get a piece of paper and a really, a really cool title. Like, that would be awesome. So, and why I tell you that is that uh, through the years, who I have become is because I have this passion for this generation to grow into who they are, I really have just developed a passion to resource the people who work with them. Uh, I was telling the staff here at lunch yesterday, about 10 years into doing ministry, I kind of had this epiphany. I can work with kids myself, or if I model it the way that Jesus modeled it, if I pour into 12, and then a little bit more into three, and then a little bit more into one, and expect them to go out and build the church, I will have built disciples. And so about 10 years into, into ministry, I really kind of shifted my gaze to resourcing, to becoming a train the trainer. I still am in the trenches with kids, but uh, I probably won't ever not be because I just really love that. 
there's something fun about being with teenagers. Uh, the other day I had to teach at a school and I uh, had to do elementary school one day and then junior high the next day. My husband said, how is it going today? I said, oh, it's so much better, it's junior high today. And he was like, nobody says those words. And I was like, uh, I don't even know what to do with second grade. And kindergarten, guys, I don't know. Like, let's just have a discussion about something. So, so that's, that's the first thing that you need to know about me. The second thing that you need to know about me is that if I can't find a resource, um, I figure somebody else probably needs it, and so I start doing research and I create it. That's how you ended up with the book that you have in front of you today. Uh, I uh, was a parent. Well, I still am a parent. You don't, I guess you don't really stop being a parent. I, as my kids got, began to get older and I began to try to find practical, practical resources of how to connect with my kids, uh, I, I, any of you who have junior high or high school kids understand that there comes this point where your child was like this glorious creature. Um, even if they were difficult, they were sort of fun. And then like, I don't know what happens. Like, I mean, it's Halloween, so like that sort of happens to them. I wanted to name the book When Your Baby Gets Eaten by Puberty. So like, <laughs> see, and so they wouldn't let me name it that. So something happens and you just are like, you feel like you're tripping through parenthood and you're doing everything wrong, and I just wanted a resource of what should I be doing, and I, I could find resources for uh, when my kids were struggling with a huge challenge, and I could find basic parenting resources on the visioneering of discipling my kids, but I couldn't find anything practical. Um, and I felt like every blog just told me all of the things I should be doing, and I felt like I was doing all things wrong. And so I went to Randall House and I said, hey, I have this idea for a book, what do you think? And they said, uh, sure. And I was really surprised by that. Um, but that's really what the book is that we were able to give to you today. If you don't have kids, um, my hope would be that it would give you some insight into how to help the parents of your students um, or give it away to a parent of one of your students. Uh, it's, that's kind of the second. So the first piece is I just really... I love to study. The second thing is I love to resource. Um, and uh, really, the, the third thing is, is that I'm just passionate about following Jesus. Uh, I, get, I have the opportunity to spend a lot of time doing leadership training um, with high school students, and I, I do some specific days with high school seniors. I, I get invited to come into schools and, and do like these one- and two-day trainings with high school seniors, kind of prepping them for the next phase in life. And I, I always, in every training that I do, share this concept uh, because it is, what it, was, it is what transformed my life. This is what I tell them. If you can become an open-handed person that's, that is willing to sit before Jesus and say whatever you want, however you want it, wherever you want me to go, I'm in it with you, your life will be hard, it will be challenging, it will be overwhelming, and it will be entirely worthwhile. And so um, that is the person that I've become. And so that's why what I do for a living now sounds very strange. Um, but we're going to connect it to today. The first thing that I do is that I, uh, so this is, these are my kids. Um, I love this picture because it kind of defines who we are. I look a little bit confused um, and nobody else is paying attention. So. 
Um, I have four kiddos. One of them is adopted. So yeah, nobody knows if they can laugh. I, that's why I always put it that way. Every, it's the only thing I do the same way every time I, I train is because everybody's like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I was supposed to laugh at that. Yes, she did not come from our loins. So, um, so I have three biological kids, uh, two and a half years from youngest to oldest. Let that sink in for a moment, that age span. We had three babies, three toddlers, three preschoolers. I now have a senior in high school, a freshman in college, and a sophomore in college. And you are asking yourself, how do they pay for that? Jesus. So... Um, Crystal came to be um, a part of our full-time lives. Uh, she lived with us in summers through junior high um, when she was 16. She came to live with us um, forever, and uh, she is 27 now. Um, in the past year, just some life choices um, brought her to a place where she moved back home, and she has the most awesome baby in the whole world. Uh, Jasper is his name. Uh, he lives with us too, and so uh, he's 10 months old now. He took his first two steps on his own this week. That's terrifying. And so it was terrifying. When he started crawling, I was like, nobody, stop. Now I have to clean things again. So, so it's kind of interesting because it's really forced me to even relook at the way I think about teenagers and the way I do ministry because... Uh, she works at a hospital, and she works 3 to 11, so we are, we are not the grandparents that get to love on our kids and then send them home. We are completely immersed in raising him, and so uh, we are, it's, it's really interesting. He looks at our whole family as really his whole family, uh, so uh, he is, uh, a, he's just a joy, and so it's been kind of a fun and interesting journey. Um, for work, what I do is I, read, I run a leadership program at a local Christian high school, and I uh, also am the director of education of a marine science center. Uh, actually, my boss quit yesterday, and apparently I'm in charge of the marine science center now. <laughs> so it's been a really interesting 24 hours. So yay me. So, um, but really what I do there is there's a faith-based component and there's a non-faith-based component. And the faith-based component, um, what we do is we really help students using a variety of different mechanisms, including distance learning for people like yourself that are landlocked, to help um, them really understand how amazing God's creation is. And I, what we do is I help them understand how much God can care about them by sharing with them the intricacies of his design. Um, only 20% of the ocean has ever been explored. We know less about the ocean than we do about space. And so we can always find something new, and you can, in a, in a day and age where it's hard to inspire kids and make them in awe of something, everybody's in awe of the ocean. And so, and we're actually going to talk about that in a second. So uh, on the non-faith-based side, we teach marine science. Really what I do is I dupe kids into being in awe of God. So... Um, by using science. And so that, I, it's just a really interesting um, life that I live. Uh, the reason why I give you all of this context as we go into the day is to tell you this. 
Um, I have the opportunity to work with uh, over 5,000 kids on a monthly basis, ages 5 to 18, in all different settings, in Christian, non-Christian, public schools, all different backgrounds, all different socioeconomic backgrounds. My family and I still live in the inner city that we've um, um, served and loved our neighbors um, as ourselves for 20 years, um, all sorts of different places. And so I hope to provide some context to you to understand the students that you work with. So we're going to jump in today, and uh, I am hoping that I'll send you away at the end of the day with some really practical things. So the first thing that I would like you to do, and we're going to go to our next slide, is I have a picture of the ocean. I live five, five minutes from the beach, so we're going to talk about it a lot today. Um, you'll actually notice there are two buttons at your table. There's one that says dive deep, um, and there's one that says dream as big as the sea. And so we're going to be using the ocean as our backdrop today to understand Gen Z. Uh, the dive deep is really our theme of the day. We are going to go deep into who they are and really help you understand how to contextually think about them, how their parents are thinking, and walk through uh, life. And my hope is that you'll be able to walk away and resource your leaders and resource your parents in a way that will help them feel less disconnected to this generation. So uh, to me, this picture is a picture of perfection. There's so much about it that is perfection to me. So what I'd like you to do is take 30 seconds at your table and discuss with your neighbors, um, if you could define the word perfection, what would it be? Okay, go. Okay, who can give me some definitions of how you would define perfection? Quick ones. How would you define perfection? Okay, something being the best of what it can be to its abilities. Okay. When you first look at your child, your newborn child. You first look at your, your newborn baby. Okay. My new friend Janet over here said her husband, which I think is awesome. Oh. That's awesome. Is he sitting next to her? Okay, so then she was forced to say that, so... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, now there's all so much. It's gotten really sticky in here. So, one more. But I think that that is very sweet. <laughs> one more definition. Highly detailed. Okay, so I want to show you a video. And at the end of this video, we're going to talk about if you think this is perfection. Okay. Oh, 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 look, we got a little octopus up in the corner there. Oh, oh, my God, is that the Dumbo? Dumbo. 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 We got the Dumbo. You get rewarded after all those sea pigs. All right, ballet crew. Here we go. All right, I'm going to paint them with the lasers, and I'm going to turn them off for some really good imaging. Okay. Let me get a speaker there. Let's get as much as we can. Oh, and the world loves a Dumbo. Get one more shot with the lasers here. You ready? Ready, Bryce? There it is. And it's gone. You got it? Yep. All right. All right. There we go. Oh, hey, big fella. Oh, cool. Change so in color. Uh, well, the uh, iris went down a little bit, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to expose for the uh, uh, Dumbo. 
Oh my gosh. I feel uh, happy. Very cool. So cute. <laughs> now we need to add a little feather to him. Yeah. Oh, oh, here we go. Shot. So. Oh, showing off. Hey, you're going to be wow. famous. In the vehicle. Ah. Looking bubble. Watch that. Oh, wow, look at that yeah. hood. It's beautiful. Yeah, you can see it ripple. Oh, that's great. That whole mantle there. Wow. Oh, this is great. Wow. Oh, there we go. Oh, oh my gosh, so she's nice. posing. That's this is great. So yeah, beautiful. you can show off. Hi, Deb. I love me a good cephalopod. The uh, genus too. on this. Don't is we all just love ourselves a good cephalopod? Yeah. So, Grumpatoothus? Grumpy Tooth. Don't yeah, Grumpy Tooth. Yeah. <laughs> what do these guys feed on, Chad? to tell us it's backwards. Grumpy creatures? I don't know. Oh, man. All right, we've only got another 30 seconds or so, unfortunately. That's okay. okay. I'll take every second I can yeah, get I'll with this guy. Give me one more laser shot. So cool. Yeah, more, yeah, one more would be good, yeah. Yeah. Rice is clicking away. Oh, there we go. I love We're going to get every single movement up this time. Well, tomorrow we may have a GoPro aboard. All right, got to um, move along, unfortunately. Goodbye. Goodbye for now. Bye. I love watching. Nice to meet you. In my spare time, I love watching like <laughs> scientists um, studying the ocean because they always sound like NPR like announcers. They're never like they're always like, "Oh, look, we just discovered something that nobody's discovered before. That's awesome." Like nobody's like ever super excited. Okay. Um, if you didn't catch it, uh, this, they were exploring an unexplored area of the ocean, and they caught this Dumbo octopus on camera. How many of you would define this octopus as perfection? Okay, why? Doing the best it can. Okay, it's doing the best that it can. Anybody else? It's no accident. It's, it is no accident. It's entirely created the way it's supposed to be. That's why I like the ocean. It's really pure and untainted. Here's the reality, though. I've kind of stretched you to look at this crazy creature that lives in the bottom of the sea that nobody ever sees moving along, doing its own thing, to um, think about whether or not it could be perfect. And in the sort of hypothetical world, we want to believe it's perfect but it's really kind of weird looking and kind of a, like just strange and kind of doing what it does, but, but it's, it's just kind of odd. And so here's my connection for you. This is what's happening to this generation of kids. They are going along being a little bit like the Dumbo octopus. They're a little bit odd, they're a little bit weird. They're being who they are. They're doing what they do. But rather than the world celebrating them, they're in a constant push and pull, feeling like the world is telling them what they're not and telling them what they should be. They can't keep up with it. They're a generation defined by perfectionism that they put on themselves, and it's crushing them. And we're going to, and so I wanted to talk, I wanted to begin in this place 
of talking of this idea of perfectionism because if there was one defining word that I could use for this generation, it would be perfectionistic. Because it's not that we think they're perfect, it's not even that they think they're perfect. It's that they feel in a constant pressure under themselves all of the time to present themselves to the world as whatever they think the world wants them to be. And the problem with that is that the world is in a constant shifting idea of culture and they're presenting something brand new every 30 minutes of what, of what that should be. And they cannot keep up. And they are overwhelmed and they, they are hurting because of it. Uh, I was talking to um, the staff here yesterday and I, I really wish Chap Clark would rewrite his book, Hurt because I think it would be completely different now. Because I think there's a lot of markers in this generation that is causing them to be completely different than they ever were before. And so that's where we're going to go next. Uh, we can actually go to the next slide. Is what I want to do for the rest of this first session, or not, there it is. Um, what I want to do for the rest of this first session, as Rob said, he heard me do a podcast that kind of explained what I was asked to do in that podcast for D6 that year was uh, to explain how do parents see their kids in each stage, from baby to young adult, because I'd experienced all of those stages at the time. And so uh, really what I feel like the underlying issue with all of this is for us to understand generations. And so that's where we're going to go a little bit um, in the next couple of moments, is I want to explain Gen Z to you. Uh, I'm not going to ask you if you know what that is exactly, because I, even in the last year, I've seen a shift from, every, from half the room thinking that the current generation is millennials to everyone understanding that we are with Gen Z. If you don't know the, if you don't know the age span of Gen Z, um, the oldest was born in 1995, and the youngest was born in 2015. So if you are working with kids ages 5 to 25, you are working with Gen Z. In case you didn't know, the oldest millennial is 40. The millennials are now becoming the parents. For those of you who are doing children's ministry, you are working with millennials again, but they're the parents of your kids. And for those of us in junior high and youth ministry, we are going to see X is going to leave, and we are going to see more and more millennial parents. I don't believe in the markers that we're seeing in the generations. We're going to see a huge change in the kids, but we are seeing in the change of the approach to parenting. And so you're going to see a difference in the parent type of ministry that you have to do in the next probably five years. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to spend some time explaining and comparing generations to you, and then what we're going to do is kind of sum up what does that mean. So um, I was told that the writing is very small from far away, so uh, if you want, I can send this to you. And you saw, uh, I, there's a, there will be a QR code at the end of both, uh, of, at the last slide of both of my sessions. It's the same set of notes. Um, I write an obnoxious amount of notes because my husband said that nobody really cares about facts and statistics the way that I do. So I stopped talking about them, and so now I just write them all down, and it's like 35 pages of notes. So um, this is in the notes. So let me, let me walk you through um, generations and connectivity, and I'm going to make some connections for you on what this means for the change that you're seeing in students. 
Um, how many of you have done ministry for over 10 years? How many of you have done ministry for over 15 years? Okay, so anybody who's been in here 10 to 15 years, who's been in this 10 to 15 years, they began to, there began to ha something to happen to you about probably about 10 years ago, um, is that you began to see a shift in the way students were, in the way that they thought, in the way that they interacted, and you just figured that uh, it's just a change, kids are just different, or the school is different, or their activities are different. Actually, there was a significant shift in the way generations, in the way the, gen the, two, the last two generations look at the world. And so that is really, really what happened. Okay, so here's where we have. Um, we have the Maturists, which were born pre-1945. They're also known as the greatest generation. If you don't know what typically marks a generation, typically we understand the mark, the mark of a new generation with a, glo a global cultural event. And so that's not happening anymore, and the world is moving a little bit faster than it was. So sociologists are actually saying now that we probably, in the next couple of years, will begin to identify more and more micro-generations among a generation of people. So they were pre-World War. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Um, they, were, uh, they came out of World War II, they came out of the Great Depression. The markers of that generation overall was that they were hard workers, they'd come from an extremely difficult time in history. They had come from a time where they were completely without, families were poor, every family was poor, and it was a, sh and it was a struggle. So what that made them was an incredibly hard-working generation that was going to do whatever it took to keep their family together. Um, they had watched um, parents and siblings go off to war and not come home. And so what they wanted to do was keep the family unit tight, and they wanted, to, they wanted to keep a good job, and they wanted to keep that for the rest of their life. It was all about taking care of your family. But the interesting thing about that generation was that they also believed their family was their neighborhood. And so your family wasn't just who lived in your home. Your family were, were the people that lived in your neighborhood. It was not uncommon for extended family to live on the same block. The idea that we have now that families living all over the country from each other, that was not a reality back then. People did, my uncle, when my grandmother passed away, um, we had to go from Massachusetts to Maine. It's two states away. He had never left the state of Massachusetts in his entire life. Um, and so that was, that was very common for that generation. The generation that followed them were the boomers. Uh, the boomers um, have an interesting span because there's really two sides to the boomers. The older boomers, um, they were the parents of Gen X. They were my parents. And the older boomers came right out after uh, the Great Depression. And so they really cared about job security, um, it was about having a good job, and it was very much about working your way up the corporate ladder and, and creating yourself. 
boomers created themselves. So there was kind of a shift and you have this job for life. And my father-in-law is a great example of this. He got out of high school. He became a welder. Um, he had the opportunity through his company to go back to college. He went back to college and kind of worked his way up through education. That was very common with the boomers. That was kind of the first end of the boomers. The other end of the boomers are the parents of the millennials. Those boomers, they came out, they were farther removed from the Great Depression, so it was a little bit less of this panic of, I have to work really hard, and it was more about, they wanted to raise, and here's what's important to understand. The early boomers raised Gen X, you will go out into the world, you will work, you will work hard, you will understand your place in society, you will have a good family, and you will do whatever it takes to make yourself successful. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, suck it up, and move forward. That was the early boomer to Gen X. The late boomer to the millennials were, let's get together, I want you to have an experience. I don't want you to work as hard as I did. I don't want you to work as hard as my parents did. I want you to have a better life than I do. Um, the idea of the helicopter parent came out in the late boomer generation with the millennials. I need to be hovering over you because I want to make sure that you're okay. Okay, this is important to understand because it created two different generations of people. So, then we have Gen X, which is my generation. We're considered the bridge generation and the generation defined by nothing. So, <laughs> yay us. So, we were supposed to work hard and like, have grunge. So, um, and I think it's because when you look at the age span of Gen X, it's 61 to 1980, loads of things happened in that, in that time frame. I think an interesting piece that we have to understand between the boomers and Gen X is huge cultural shifts happened that are norms in our country right now. Civil rights, women's rights, the idea to be able to fight for your place in society. Um, if you've never watched the movie The Post, I highly recommend it. Um, I ended up watching it on a plane because I was bored. But it is an incredible look into, it's, it's the story of how the Washington Post ended up uh, sharing the true story of what was going on in the Vietnam War. But really, it's the story of the woman who took over the Washington Post after her husband committed suicide. And so, in a time and day and age where women did not lead things, and, and literally, like, there's scenes in the movie where the women would be in one room talking about what they were going to wear, and the men would be in another room talking about business. That's the early 60s that we're talking about the cultural norms. So I think what is really important to understand is that my generation began to absorb some normalcy and some things that had never been normal before. So the idea that we embrace all races became, began to become more normal. The idea that women didn't have a specific role in society that they had to play, but that they could move outside the home and, and do different things. I mean, I think what's interesting is if you do, and if you look into any history, it's the women who were left behind during World War II that were basically supporting the war. They were the ones welding. They were the ones building. They were the ones going to work every day. And yet, when the men came home 
from the war, the understanding was you go back to your place in society. And that's one of the reasons why the women's, right mo women's rights movement happened is there was this unsettlement of, I don't understand that. What's important to understand about as we're going forward in the generations is my generation was the first generation to kind of begin to accept this as these things are normal. It's normal that you live in neighborhoods with lots of different types of people. It's normal that you have a friend who both parents go to work, but you also have parents who want the mom stays home. Um, we were the first generation to see divorce. And so we were the first generation of latchkey kids. And so those things began all different sorts of, while we're defined by nothing, I really think that what we're defined by is huge cultural shifts of different pieces that began to become normal. The millennials um, came into the world at a very interesting time. Um, it was a time where their parents wanted them to be happy and experience things. It was also a time in history where we were pretty settled economically. And so it was a, they were very comfortable. What that created was a generation of people who were able to be entrepreneurial and they were able to be, to be overly confident. Um, one of my favorite, um, I, I've quoted this like a couple of times in the last couple of days, but one of my favorite um, SNL skits is it's a talk show kind of poking fun at millennials. And the whole idea behind it is that they come in to this talk show with all of these skills they don't really have, but are very confident about it. And my favorite line from the whole thing is, you have unearned confidence, and that's accepted now. So, um, and while we constantly, you know, the whole, the, there was a book written about it. Everybody gets a trophy. And while we make fun of that, really what happened with the millennial generation, and the reason why Gen X was kind of like, who are you, was we were taught you have to work really, really hard, and they showed up and said, I want to try all the new things, and I think if I try, I can be good at it. And what happened to us, which was difficult, was the boomers believed them. And so we got walked over um, because the millennials were more confident than we were. Not more capable, but more confident. And so that's who the millennial generation became. Um, then we have Gen Z. In Gen Z, by the year, it is estimated by the year 2025, um, it will be the last adult population that is primarily Caucasian in this country. We are shifting um, to a multiracial um, population. And so that's why I spent so much time understanding the shifts of the way that things are. It's the largest generation in history, and it's a generation that is really defined by unsettling times. So we went from the millennials that were in a pretty decent time. Let me tell you about some things about Gen Z. Gen Z, um, the oldest of Gen Z was very, very young when 9-11 happened, so none of them remember a world pre-terrorism. None of them remember being able to go to the airport and not go through security. None of them remember, remember a time where you, it was just safe to do certain things. They had, they, we're going to talk about technology in a second and the way technology has shifted. But it is a, in 2008, the economy crashed. And while the millennials felt that going into the workforce, Gen Z were children when this happened. 
So they watched the, they watched the unsettlement of finances in their household. So they watched parents that had only one parent worked to now two parents have to go to work. It is estimated by the U.S. Department of Labor that two-parent households, um, over 70 to 80 percent of us, have to work, both of us, out of financial necessity. And for those of you whose wives don't work, most of you have wives who are doing something, or a spouse, I shouldn't just say wives, who don't have a spouse that work a traditional going to a job. Most of those two-parent households are doing something so that the other spouse can add to the finances of the family. They're selling something online, they're editing something on the side, they're doing, they're doing something. So this generation became a generation that when they were little had a lot, and as they grew up were told no. It's a generation that um, lives in a lot of fear, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, but it's because of the way society complete, completely is shifting all of the time. Um, Yesterday morning, I read a new study by Barna that said that um, I think it's like it's a high percentage of this generation no longer of Gen Z no longer trusts leadership. And a lot of that has to do with however we feel about politics. We are not going to go there um, at all. But however we feel about it, it has we have we have lived the past couple years in a completely divisive time. We have not been able as a country to get on the same page at all. In the past, we may have had issues with our leadership, but we as a country have been able to kind of go, okay, I don't like everything, but overall, I can get behind this. As a country, we've become actually, and if you just want, turn on the news this morning, we keep becoming more and more and more divided. And so everything to them in society feels unsettled. Okay, we're going to talk about two other things that I really believe are defining issues with this, with this uh, generation. The first is technology. Um, the greatest generation doesn't own a cell phone because why would I do that? The boomers own a cell phone, but um, they don't want to really use it. The older boomers don't because they remember when you had to pay for phone calls. So the idea of that I could call people on the phone and talk to them, and it's free because I've paid for my data, is difficult. My generation is what they call di digital, we are digital immigrants. So we remember the world of things like record players and phones on our walls, um, and no internet, and I grew up in rural America, two television stations, on a good day, if you were standing in the corner holding the antenna. And then when we got, um, then we, when we got cable, it, we didn't even really, we didn't even have real cable. It wasn't like VH, VH1 and MTV. It was like this fake music station. So I can't, my husband would remember what it's called because we had it in the Northeast. Um, we remember that, but we also, when technology entered the world, we were excited by it. So we immigrated into that idea. Oh my gosh, yes, this cell phone is so much better than, than, than something on the wall or a payphone. Oh my gosh, the idea to be able to go online and get the information I want is so much better. I, you know, my version of you know, walking uphill 90 miles in snow you know, both ways is me talking to my kids about college papers. I'm like, listen, my degree required 30-page papers often. Let me tell you how that went down. I had to go to the library. 
and take out books and sit in the basement with this thing called microfiche, which sort of worked if you twirled it really fast and knew what you were looking for. I had, to, I had to work a card catalog. And what is sad to me is some of you in this room have no idea what I'm talking about at all. <laughs> However, and I'm now, my son has written complete papers from his phone. He's talked to texted complete research papers and then gone in and edited them and cleaned them up. Oh my gosh, I had to write on a typewriter. <laughs> with my like little like you know barrel of whiteout going down there was nothing worse than the red line of a paper because you're like oh my gosh now i have to go type it all over again i hate you teacher so but we re the point of that story is that we remember how bad it was so we wanted the better life millennials They are digital natives, so they always had cell phones, that, but they still remember the flip phone versus the touch screen. They still remember when the internet was separated from their phone. Gen Z, the oldest of Gen Z was 10 years old when the touch screen became popular. They have never known a world without having complete access to information 24 hours a day. This is why I spent so much time talking about the way that the world was. The reality is, just up to one generation ago, when something bad happened, you had to go find another device to learn about it. You had to move, you could go through your everyday life and not know what was going on in the world, and then go home and learn about it, or have somebody call you and say, did you hear? Now, it has even shifted in the last two years from the fact that I can get a notification about it to I can, somebody is out in the middle of a field filming the horrific thing that's happening in the midst of it happening. It's not even just, oh, I'm live on the scene. It's now somebody in the midst of the tragedy has taken the time while the tragedy is happening to pull out their phone and live stream it to the rest of the world. This is a generation that has never known a world that isn't like that. They have complete access to information and complete access to the news at large. Here's, where I, here's what I would say. I don't believe, I say this often, I don't believe the world is a worse place. I believe evil has been around for a very long time. Evil has been around, we know, at least since the garden because the tree that was located there was the knowledge of good and evil. What that means is that Adam and Eve didn't know about the evil. It didn't mean it didn't exist. And so evil has been around, but we have constant access to it in our face all the time. And the difference between us and Gen Z is we remember a time where we disconnected from it, so we naturally disconnect from it they do not understand how to disconnect from it. And so it is creating a generation that is crushed under the pressure of the world that is going sideways. However, here's what's interesting about technology. What's interesting about technology is this. They um, also, so here's what, I want you, here's what I want you to talk about at your tables for two minutes. 
What do you believe is their preferred method of communication and why? And here's your second question. Which of these generations do you think they relate most to? Okay, so how do they communicate and why? And which of these generations do they relate most to? Okay, go. Okay. I'm that speaker that gives you like three seconds to talk about something. What do you think is their preferred method of communication? Somebody said FaceTime, somebody said social media. Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok. I don't think they're talking to each other at TikTok. They're just showing off their skills on TikTok. Face to face? Who, okay, who said that? All right. Um, who thinks, um, which generation do you think they relate most to? Okay, the green one. Anybody else think other than the green one? Boomers, okay. Gen X, okay. Somebody said Y or millennials? Okay, so all of them? All right. <laughs> Themselves. The, the generation behind them is called the alpha generation, so they relate to the alphas. Okay. It's an interesting thought. Okay, so... Here's what's fascinating about this generation. Um, this generation, so to give you context, social media was created during the millennial, when the millennials were in college, basically. So if you remember the story of Facebook, Facebook was actually created so that college students could find each other on a campus. Yay, Mark Zuckerberg. So um, I actually remembered when it was opened up to the public and how, ooh, we're all awesome. Now my generation's still on Facebook sharing cat memes and recipes. So actually my, my parents are sharing cat memes and recipes and politics. So uh, what happened though is that the millennials, because it was all introduced, like anything that, you know, like, like a new candy that you love, they used it too much and everything blew up. Gen Z watched this happen. So because they watched this happen, they have become an incredibly private generation. Um, when you really think about it, they, they more, more and more are actually um, closing their circle in on who they allow um, into their Snapchat circle. So it's, no law, it's very, very rarely public anymore. The amount of people that they allow to follow them are smaller and smaller. Um, Instagram is used more for this is who I am publicly and Snapchat is for your friends, for your close friends. However, social media is more and more being used for Instagram is about how I present myself to the world. TikTok is how I show off my skills and who I am. Uh, Snapchat is how I talk to my friends. Direct message and texting is how I gather information, but if I want to talk to you, if I want to understand you, if I want to be vulnerable with you, I want to be sitting across from you. Face-to-face -face communication is their preferred method of communication. 
And I make that point to say it that way because I feel like we are still, those of us who work with kids and teens are still complaining about how they're overly attached to their phones. I said to this to the parents last night, we're sitting around whining about how they're overly attached to their phones when what they're doing on their phones is all of their work. It is estimated that they are multitasking between five screens at once on the same device. So millennials multitasked, but they had a computer and a TV and a phone. Now I'm looking up something on Google, I'm watching a YouTube video, I'm texting my friend, I'm putting a picture up on Snapchat, and I'm playing a game. And I'm just flipping between screens to make that happen. So we see them like this, um, and more often than not in this generation, the way that they're pushing themselves, all five of those screens are organizing their life. They're doing a project, they're looking up something, they're figuring out where they have to be next, and they're, and they're asking somebody what the homework was for that night because they couldn't understand it. And then they're playing a game in between all of those things because they want a little outlet. And so when they want to be with somebody though, they actually want, the, they want, they want to put their phone away, they want us to put our phone away, and they, wanna, they want complete focus. It is estimated in the next year, 65% of Gen Z will delete all of, all of their social media accounts for three months or more, and 35% of them will delete them for good. They're actually, they, they saw it from the millennials, they're, hear, they're hearing everybody go, oh, Instagram's fake, yeah, everything's fake, and they're realizing they can't handle it. And so they're just going, they're just going away from it. The generation that they relate most to is the greatest generation or the early boomers. It's the first generation in history that doesn't automatically relate most to the generation behind them. Um, Gen Z is actually considered a, mirror, a complete mirror image to millennials. The only thing they share in common is the entrepreneurial spirit, but I would say that the perfectionism that they live under the weight of causes us to not see that entrepreneurial spirit because they're too afraid to do anything. We are, we are, mis, we are misinterpreting um, their fear as apathy and a lack of work ethic. I don't think they're apathetic, and I don't think they lack a work ethic. I think they've become, I don't even think they're selfish, I think they're self-centered. Because I think what's happened when you put all of this together all of it, and everybody, I don't need to go, go down the whole social media road because we, talk, we all as youth people talk about it way too much. It has caused a generation to become closed and more and more and more and more closed and they are in self-protection all of the time. And so what they're doing, and we can go two slides ahead. We're gonna skip the next one. We're gonna just, I'm gonna show you a picture. Because this is what, I'm gonna give you some, this is why I wish Chap Clark would redo his book. Okay, here's what's going on societally. So we have all of those things going on. Here's what's happened in society. I'm going to give you some cultural things that have happened across the board. Public schools, in, an effort, in, in order to get funding, have to play to the test. I work with a lot of public schools. I work with the largest county in Florida. They, in order to get their funding, they have to constantly be pushing kids up the system um, to, to get test scores. In a world where um, the idea of success is constantly shifting, 
nobody can define success anymore. Success is not having um, a good family anymore. Success is not having a good job anymore. Success is not necessarily having, making a lot of money anymore. If I asked 19 of Gen Z, what do you want out of life? They would say, I want to be successful. 18 of them would say, I want to be successful. If I said to you, what does that mean? I would get 19 different answers. And so because of that, you have the test scores, plus private schools are pushing more and more to create a niche to get you there. What you have is a generation of kids that are constantly the one piece that they understand is successful is a good grade. And they have, they, I do not know where it's come from, but I have, this, I have this conversation all the time with students and their parents. There's become this misinformed belief that if I don't take 900 AP classes and 20 dual enrollment classes, I will get zero money for my future. It's not true. I have two kids in college. We can sit around and talk about financial aid for several hours, I'm happy to tell you. Some schools don't give any money just because they don't. Um, and pretty much every school, if you go onto their website, gives like four tiers. If you have these grades and this test score, you get this amount of money. And they pretty much stick to that. But somewhere along the way in this, in this issue with success and this difficulty of, of understanding success, they have absorbed that I understand getting an A is successful, and so now I have to go to the next level. You'll hear students say things like, and even little kids say things like, well, I got a B, so I guess I'm failing. Okay. <laughs> and, the, and the students that are genuinely struggling in school, that have learning difficulties of different times, just feel like they are just abject failures, and I might as well just accept that I'm not going to be anything in life at all. Because why bother? Sports, the picture's not up there, but um, it's a picture of my son. Uh, my son started playing football um, when he was in, tackle football when he was in seventh grade. Uh, and here's what we learned very quickly about sports now. To sit the bench, it's six days a week. It's two-a-days from when they're small until all the way through high school. It doesn't matter if they want to go on and play in college. It doesn't matter if they want to. It doesn't matter if they want to do something um, more, if they just want to have fun. You're not allowed to do anything in school anymore because it's fun. You can't be in theater. It's competitive. You can't be in sports. It's competitive. You can't, you can't do anything without it being this constant pressure of a teacher or whoever is in charge needing to, or the coach, needing to achieve a certain level of success so that they can prove why their position should be funded. Because what we're cutting out of the schools is the fine arts programs and the sports. And so to prove that it's worthwhile to have it, so then, so then they move to the club sports. Um, if you have students who play soccer or lacrosse or rugby, the reason why they're in a club sport and they're playing at school is because at school, that's where you play with your friends and it's fun. You play the club sport because that's where you're seen to be able to get into college. It's the other trajectory that is completely misunderstood about how to go to college. 
Parents believe that if you do one more thing, one more activity will get you another dollar to get you into where you want to go next. Nobody tells them that D3 gives no money, and you don't want to play D2 or D1 because they own you. They literally will, my, my kids have had friends that they, their coaches will come and tell them, you need to change your major because your major's too hard. You need to spend more time in practice. D1 and D2. So their only option for a scholarship is NAIA. And even then, it's not a full ride. So when my son came to us and he said, I want to play college football, first of all, this is always what, I like to tell this piece of it, okay? This is, I, I love to tell this because I like it to sink into the people who understand football, okay? My son now is finally 170 pounds. He is 5'10". He plays middle linebacker. Yes, thank you. So people are like, why don't you watch your son play football? Did I, do you not understand the position he plays in the size that he is? So uh, my son, my, my, we were, my husband showed me a clip the other day, and he's like, oh, look at this really cool play that Caleb made. And I was like, where is he? He goes, he's the guy taking down the 220-pound running back. I did not want to see that. Thanks. <laughs> um, but let me tell you, when he came to us and said, I think I want to play college football, we said, you just like the game of football. We don't want you to have the pressure on you to not be able to leave if you don't want to. So we came to the decision as a family for him to look at a D3 school, um, even though he was recruited by some other guys. He was, he's not big enough to play D1. And people always ask me because he's thinking about transferring to Liberty. He couldn't play at Liberty? No. No, he cannot play at Liberty. Um, not in that position. And he, does, he only likes to tackle. So, yeah, he's a little... He's the sweetest. He's the kid that, like, on the sidelines is super compassionate, making sure his team is awesome, and then, like, gets onto the, to the field, and, like, every, like, aggressive piece of his body is like, I hate the world, and he takes everybody down. Um, but we're about to go to a break, and so here's, here's where I kind of want, I want you to kind of talk, to, talk about um, during the break. Um, I wanted to show you a picture of him because we have never cared if he plays sports. It has never mattered to us if he played sports. He has loved the game of football since he was five years old. I am 5'2 and not a large person. My husband is 5'9 and when he has a belly is 150 pounds. So like, we, were, we did not know how we could produce a tackle football player. We still don't really understand that, but he hasn't really come to grips with the fact he's not really supposed to be playing middle linebacker. So we have never cared, but society has put the pressure on him that if he wanted to play, we had to give up vacations. We had to, we had to ask him, hey, we're going away as a family. What do you want to do? just so that he could play. We can't, and so this is what I want you to, we're gonna take a, about a 30 minute break, and here's what I want you to really talk about as we come back, we're going to shift gears from who are they into what can they do. I don't think it's shocking that um, teen rebellion statistics are at all time lows. Teen pregnancy, um, drinking, smoking, apparently we've just all discovered that vaping is bad, we didn't know this two weeks ago, but ooh, it's bad now. So 
you can laugh. Like, I have such a dry sense of humor, nobody knows if they're supposed to laugh. So, um, but those are at all-time lows. It is not shocking. Anxiety, depression, and suicide are at all-time highs. These kids are internalizing. Um, they're becoming perfectionistic. They're hiding, and they're afraid. So what I want you to talk about um, at the break is what are you seeing in your own groups? What are the struggles that you're seeing in your students that are exhibiting these behaviors? And then um, we're going to talk, like, take the time to talk about that over the break, and then we're going to come back after the break, and we're going to shift into some things that we can do um, to kind of help them. All right. Thank you, Lenita.